This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Okay, I'm Scott. This is Jesse. And this is Rick Jackson, a.k.a. the Time Traveler. All right. Hello, fellas. Hey, boys. Hey. Hi. Some, How's uh, it going? It's going good. Going good. Um, How's got... Jesse? He sounds like hell. Yeah, he is. He's in hell. <laughs> hell of Jesse's sickness. Down. He's in uh, Inferno by Niven and Pornell. Yeah. But he will. Bit of snot. <laughs> we, we trust that he will find his way out. <laughs> all right, well, I got some new arrivals for us. Um, first of all, Starship Sofa. Um, Starship Sofa has spent the week uh, putting the uh, British Science Fiction Award nominees online. So they've got three of them that they posted this week, um, which are all the short... Well, there's four short fiction nominees. He put three of the four up. I'm not sure what's going on with the fourth. Um, He's but not going to get the very last one. He isn't? Okay. No. Um, the first one is Evidence of Love in a Case of Abandonment by M. Rickert. Um, then we've got Little Lost Robot by Paul McCauley. Um, that one's read by Matthew Wayne Selznick, by the way. And the uh, Very good. M. Rickert, M. Rickert story is read by Amy Sturgis. And then um, Ted Chang, um, one of my favorite writers. Uh, Exhalation read by Ray Sizemore. So, Jesse, I hope you get a chance to hear that story, because that's something I'd love to talk to you about. It's a good one. The Ted Chang one, yeah. Right, yeah. Did that one, already, did that one already appear? Yep, it's appeared. It's up. Wow. I mean, did it appear previously to this, or is it new? Oh, yeah, it was in an anthology ship? called Eclipse 2. It, it hasn't appeared anywhere on audio, um, but okay. it was on, in an anthology called Eclipse 2, right at the end of 2008. So I'm pretty sure it's okay, December awesome. 2008. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful story. This guy, the guy, continually blows me away. Um, all he right, writes him got, good. He does. He does. I got three from Blackstone. Um, the first one is Green Hills of Earth by some guy named Robert Heinlein. Who, Say uh, one think, more time. Uh, the Green Hills of Earth mm. by Robert Heinlein. Um, Ooh, who's the reader on that? Um, it is Tom Weiner. Okay. Yeah. Isn't it a short story collection or something? It is, yeah. yeah. Yep, six and a half hours, six compact discs. It includes Delilah and the Space Rigger, Space Jockey, The Long Watch, Gentlemen Be Seated, The Black Pits of Luna, It's Great to Be Back, We Also Walk Dogs, Ordeal <laughs> in Space, The Green Hills of Earth, and Logic of Empire. It's been released before, but I don't think it was by Blackstone. I think it was... Okay, yeah, I've got it. Books on tape. Um, I actually have this one. It's It was not particularly well read, but um, including you know, everything that was there before. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also an LP release back uh, in 1979 by Cademan. Um well, that's the one read by uh, Leonard Nimoy. Right, and that's um, only got two two of the stories in it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was the uh, audio drama of X-1, the just of the story, The Green Hills of Earth. Yeah. Mm. 
mm-hmm. which is actually not too bad. No, it's pretty good. Yeah, excellent. Good deal. All right, and then we've got, also from Blackstone, we've got uh, Brotherhood. Oh, wait, of- wait, wait, wait. Before we go on, you okay. know that, that there's some trivia belonging to um, Green Hills of Earth? Okay. Um, I believe it's the only science fiction that's actually been read in, aloud in outer space and transmitted back to Earth. Um, oh, really? The poem, the poem from the Green Hills of Earth. Um, was that oh. Apollo 15? Or Apollo 17? Um, they, uh, they had a copy with them and uh, read it back. Cool. Uh, on a Christmas Eve show. Uh-huh. Uh, trying to get some interest back in uh, the moon missions. They, they had a Christmas um, reading from uh, the crew of Apollo 15, I believe it was. And there's a recording out there on the internet. I posted about this. Um, it's so cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. That is interesting that, trivia. Mm-hmm. You bet. I wanna, I wanna that was kind it. of a tragic story, though. I don't know if... Uh, well, they read the nice part. They read the nice part. Yeah. You know, we now want to go back to the cool greens, cool green hills of Earth. It is a tragic story, so I guess they didn't emphasize that part. <laughs> right. All right. Um, now, David Farland, um, Brotherhood of the Wolf, Book Two of the Rune Lords. Um, it's twenty-two and a half hours long. Read by Ray Porter. So uh, we've talked about the Rune Lord series here before. Um, good. That, is that the same no- narrator for the series? Um, you know, I don't know for sure, and I don't have the other one here in front of me, but I think it is. Okay. Yeah. It's and nice then the last one that arrived in this batch is uh, Bellwether by Connie Willis. Um, we talked about that last week as a, uh, uh, you listed it as a, a recent or a, a new, new release. New release, yeah. Yeah. Um, read by Kate Redding, so, um, and it's a short one, five and a half hours. It is unabridged. It's a short novel. My it's favorite. A good, it's a good book. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. I haven't read it, so. Um, it's to it. it's not super science fictiony. That's the mm-hmm. the. Uh, I I feel that way about all of Connie Willis's books as well. Um, mm-hmm. They're more chatty than they are. They they don't feel like regular science fiction, and I I guess that. Given that she's won so many Hugos, that can't be right. But <laughs> um, it just doesn't—it doesn't feel. This one especially doesn't feel very science fictiony. Um, but it has a—it um, has uh, some very interesting ideas in it. Um, but it's, it's also—I guess maybe it's not—it's very chirpy, you know, uh, not chirpy, uh, chippy. No, what's the when it's cheerful? <laughs> How about that? Start C H. So she's tackling sort of interesting, uh, very um, uh, scientific edge subjects, but doing so in sort of a light comedy manner. The the last one I got is from uh, Penguin Audio, and it is called Corsair by Clive Cussler with Jack DeBrule. Now, I I was wondering, I'm not sure if this is science fiction or not. I've read uh, two Clive Cussler novels in the past. I actually listened to them both. Loved them. I really loved them. Um, but they were of the the James Bond type of unbelievable. Um, you know, it was great fun, but, you know, uh, nobody's going to survive that kind of a situation. Um, but, but Clive Cussler, he, he writes about uh, Dirk Pitt. 
and that's his main character and um, you know Dirt Pit does James Bond kind of stuff but on the ocean and uh, this series that Corsair is in is called uh, The Oregon Files which is about a ship called the Oregon a seemingly dilapidated ship packed with sophisticated equipment and captained by the rakish one-legged Juan Cabrillo and now the Oregon and its crew face their biggest challenge yet so I'm looking forward to hearing that one but I don't know if uh, I'd call it science fiction or not I guess I'll find out uh, maybe it's fantasy <laughs> could be that's that's why some people classify the James Bond stuff oh really yeah yeah I don't know what I'd call it it's yeah um, lots of uh, near future gadgetry I guess one of my friends said, uh, yeah, they're all, all, all the James fantasy, uh, James Bond movies are fantasy, except for the one with the invisible car, which is just crap. <laughs> <laughs> and I agree. I don't remember that, that was, one. How could, that I, was, how could I have forgotten the invisible car? I don't I think that, that was three movies ago. Uh, it was oh. in Iceland, and the car, you know, it's not just bulletproof, and it doesn't just have, you know, wings on it and, you know can swim mm -hmm. underwater. No, it's invisible too. Yeah. <laughs> Just so you know, I, I haven't seen the latest film, but the, the first movie with uh, Craig in it. Daniel Craig, isn't his, that his name? Um, Daniel Craig, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was great. I thought it was neat. Uh, yeah, it I, sort of gets away from the fantastic elements. Yeah. What's I've that right? Gotten away from, yeah, I, I've kind of gotten away from James Bond. I just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're now just the kind only... of I'm I'm interested in the one you just mentioned because I, the the new Daniel Craig movies, but I kind of dropped them back when uh, like Moonraker was about the last one I wanted to ever watch again. <laughs> uh, yeah, Moonraker's uh, not the highlight of uh, the James Bond series. However, I think Roger Moore is the highlight of the James Bond actors. No, well, really. That's, yeah, no not being a big fan, it's hard for me to defend Sean Connery. But come on, it's got to be Sean Connery. Well, that's what everybody says. That's what everybody says. Uh, but if you think about it, Sean Connery is—he's—he's—he's um, he's, he's the guy who started it. So a lot of people are gonna feel for him, his his position. I mean, he's a cool guy and everything. But um, given that they really—I mean—they are fantasy and they are you know, big jokes. I mean, the entire, <laughs> the entire movie is just a series of jokes, basically, with physical uh, repercussions. It's not that serious a, a movie. Uh, Roger Moore is the best comic actor among them. Well, and then okay. maybe the new ones are not about comedy at all. And in that case, it's sort of a different animal. We'll see. I, I didn't like the most recent Quantum of Solace that much. I... I I found myself not knowing what the hell is going on most of the time. I haven't seen that yet. I think I think the two the two most recent ones are very tied together, and then you have to have watched. Uh, they were referring to events that I I had forgotten. I guess in the in the Casino Royale. Well, the best James Bond is really Mike Myers as Austin Powers. <laughs> Mike That's Myers sure. is Austin Powers. I mean, if you're going to go ahead and make it a joke, then uh, yeah. Oh, Austin Powers makes me laugh. Hey, there was one movie made out of one of Clive Cussler's novels, too. Um, Sahara by Matthew McConaughey. It's okay. Or, or starring Matthew McConaughey, not by Matthew McConaughey. But um, that was a Clive Cussler book. Um, 
that was it. The only Clive Cussler not set on the ocean, I guess. Cause... <laughs> they put it in the, yeah, in the desert. Although it did have a ship at the, you know, recovering a ship or something. Right, right. So, all right. Hey, Rick, what does uh, Wonder Audio have going? Oh, I'm glad you asked, Scott. Um, mm-hmm. We have a our first mystery title is coming out. And oh. I just got the uh, files in, so I haven't got them processed yet, but I've listened to them, and they're fantastic. It's called uh, The Fabulous Clip Joint by Frederick Brown. That's oh. fabulous. Mm-hmm. And it won a uh, Edgar Award for Best New Novelist for that year. I think it was, oh, geez, I'm not sure, the year 1953 or something. I think it's 54, but I could be wrong. 54? Okay. <laughs> and uh, really good story. It's one of those you listen to, and it's like, you can't wait to get back to it, you know. You got, you got some audiobooks where you're like, eh, I guess I'll, you know, plug away on this title for a while, and then you got the other ones that just draw you back, and you're like looking for time to listen to it. This one's one of those. And holy cow, you know, 1947. Oh wow, we're off. Yeah. I was closer than you though. Yes, you were. <laughs> All right. But uh, Frederick Brown's also known as a science fiction author, of course. But he was also well known as a mystery writer. Yeah, I did not know that. And uh, um, William Coons, the narrator for that one. Okay. How how soon are we going to be hearing this in the? Uh, Let's say spring. Catalog. Spring. Let's okay. say spring's a safe round. General. Space <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> Latest news on Conan. Uh, that I have is actually a story I posted late last night um, that Tantor Media has signed a deal with Del Rey uh, Random House who has uh, apparently got the Conan paper book rights of some kind um, in the United States at least and uh, Tantor is going to be producing some Book audiobooks based on that. I don't really know um, much about it, but I don't speak Swedish, and this press release is in Swedish. So, <laughs> I, if maybe somebody out there knows more about how to translate Swedish into English, uh, they can get a little bit more details. It was very brief mention in a February 28th Paradox Entertainment press release. So, I got an email from Paul Mannering, um, who I've talked to before. Uh, he's a uh, uh, one of at main hooligans at uh, Broken Sea Audio Productions, um, and he was telling me that they had just pulled all the Conan um, audiobooks that are in the public domain in Aus- New Zealand and Australia um, from their website. Um, the licensing company called Conan Properties International had sent them a vaguely threatening letter um, saying that not only are we not going to grant you the license that we were going to grant you, we're also telling you that you're in deep trouble if you don't if you keep putting out Robert E. Howard stuff. And um, the was logic it any, was... any Robert E. Howard stuff or just the Conan? Yeah, basically. Uh, it doesn't specifically say... Um, you know, <laughs> it doesn't specifically say we are going to sue you, but this is what the the final 
sentences of the of the uh, latest letter said it said CPI owns copyrights in Robert E. Howard stories throughout the world, and those copyrights can be violated regardless of whether you are selling your derivative works or giving them away. CPI will continue to monitor broker in connection with Robert E. Howard and his characters and will enforce the copyrights of all stories not in the public domain in any territory where your products are available. Um, now the problem is if there is a country in which these public domain stories are not public domain uh, so somebody said well it might be the case in Iceland um, they have copyright extension forever. That means uh, they are going to say, claim that that they can be sued, Broken Seek Audio can be sued in uh, that country. And the problem with that is, is it's totally unrealistic to expect Broken Seek Audio to go to court in Iceland, say, uh, because uh, CPI has the that claim going, but um, it wouldn't really matter. It, the, the sense I get is it wouldn't really matter if it wasn't for this new New Zealand law, which makes any claim uh, by anyone subject to uh, uh, makes the ISP uh, pull a website if there's a copyright violation claim. So imagine you have a document on your website. You're in New Zealand. And I don't like that document. It, I, I think it violates my copyright in Canada. I call your ISP and I say, this person has a website um, and he has copyrighted material that doesn't belong there on it. Please do something about it. The ISP, after three complaints, valid or not, pulls your website down and denies you access to the Internet. You're no longer allowed to be on the internet without any judicial oversight. So, uh, in lieu of getting this sort of thing happening to them, they pulled pulled it down and are trying to find lawyers to help help them clarify this issue. It's possible that this uh, New Zealand um, law, or at least the segment, um, which is a... Uh, Similar, going to be similar to the DMCA or Bill C sixty one. Its compliance with WIPO treaties, etc., um, will be revoked. That section may be revoked. In which case, uh, we might see a different story coming out of Broken Sea um, in a month or so when the final part comes in. I hope, hope I can. Hope that's an okay summary. I'm a little bit sick, and it is. <laughs> it is early morning. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did I miss anything, Rick? No, I think you covered it pretty well. Uh, my argument was, and I wrote it on SF Off Audio in the comments, and then I was kind of in a ranty mode, so I went into Boing Boing and wrote it, was that that means any country, well, a country could just claim that copyright is forever. Right. And just really closed down public domain for the whole worldwide internet under this kind of logic where Broken Sea Audio is located in New Zealand and it seems to be pretty clear. I don't know. I don't pretend to know copyright law in New Zealand, but I think it's 70 years after the author's death. Mm -hmm. 
So it is public domain in New Zealand. So a uh, acting troupe or whatever, you know, a drama troupe can't do, it just doesn't make sense that they can't broadcast or, you know, host this in a New Zealand hosting company where the rest of the world can see it. So they have to take it down. I mean, under that kind of logic, if you use uh, reductio ad absurdum, got some Latin in there, uh, mm-hmm. you take the argument, it, there's, there, should, there, there is no public domain, in other words. That's right. Using this kind of log- logic, and which is just ridiculous. Now, there's a lot of problems with uh, copyright law, obviously, in public domain because it varies from country to country. When you've got something like a distribution system like the World Wide Web, there's going to be conflicts like this. And it's just frustrating because they want people to adhere to it, but the laws are so complicated, not only in the different countries comparing one country to another, but in just in the states I've been studying public domain law to some degree. And it's, it's really confusing. I mean, there's so many different things, different rules, that no one person, even a lawyer, can keep track of it without referring back to reference material. So, it, you know, it's just like we need a, we need a sensible laws to govern this, and these are not them. What, what CP, what's, what's the company? Paradox CPI. Entertainment? Yeah, yeah Paradox CPI. is the parent company. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. Well, they're they're using they're using the you know the the situation to their benefit. You know, if you can afford to have a lawyer and defend your your um, your claims, uh, um, then you can you can bully people around who don't have that option. Because honestly, I don't think I don't think there's any way that CPI could win any such lawsuit if it was actually brought. Because right. it's in the public domain. If if the trademark situation were legitimate, and I'm not sure that it is, because um, th- I think this is sort of the sort of the second story, and I re- I didn't put it in the article at the forefront because it just you know it's sort of a secondary issue. But if even if we accept that they've got a, a legitimate product. Um, as Scott would say, you know, the Mickey Mouse is a product, you know, a trademark of Disney. Um, even if that's true, um, their their case is still crap because it's public domain in the country in which uh, they are operating. Um, now, I don't think that their trademark can be that valid either, given that uh, Conan is actually a guy in the story. And that the title Conan and the title Conan the Barbarian have actually already been used way prior, way prior to the formation of CPI in the 1970s. There was a book in the ni- in 1954 from Gnome Press uh, called Conan the Barbarian. There was various Conan books prior to uh, in the in the 1950s and earlier. Well, just because um, a name is tr- trademark doesn't mean you can't use it in a public domain work. Absolutely. A logo, now a trademark logo you couldn't, but a trademark name, like the Three Stooges in the States here, there are really cheap DVDs you can buy with the Three Stooges that there's like six episodes that were in public domain. So Right. You can buy them cheap, and they're usually crappy copies. But they can put the Three Stooges on the product because that's what's in there. Right. Now, if they, they go, oh, well, since 
Now, if you want to sell bread and you want to put the Three Stooges on it, that's a whole different thing because you're selling a product. And- right. Um, the way I, the way I was, you know, I, uh, I kind of feel like I'm beating my head against the wall when people, you know, in the threads are, are just not getting a lot of the things. So one of the examples was Sherlock Holmes, right? Sherlock Holmes, everybody recognizes that Sherlock Holmes is in the public domain. We know this because uh, he's in everything. There's movies, there's uh, television shows, there's books everywhere. Everybody's doing audiobook versions of it. Um, it's wonderful that there's so much available. Now, if I went and took the, the new Sherlock Holmes movie logo and put that on the cover of my Sherlock Holmes book, I could be violating the trademark of that particular logo. But that font is not the same as the actual letters you know, of Sherlock Holmes put together. When well, if you did you see the CPR? Uh, I'm sorry. Did you see the Broken Sea Audio Productions Conan logo? I did not. Okay. Well, <laughs> I can't show it to you because I'll get sued by CPI. Well, maybe I could. Uh, maybe I will show it to you. But um, it didn't look like the regular Conan lo- logo. It didn't have you know the shape of any of the Conan logos that I've seen. It certainly said Conan. Um, and I associated that with the character of Conan, but I don't even think they're cl- they're claiming that they've trademarked the 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 look of what Conan looks like. I think they're only claiming that they have the exclusive rights to use the name. Yeah, which yeah, you're right. That they can't do that. <laughs> you can't copyright a title. No. For one, I've seen so. many movies with the same title, and you know, they're. Right. They're talking about confusion in the marketplace and this, that, the other thing. Well, if if you're um, giving something away, I don't even think you can make that argument. It's there's no marketplace if you can give. It's being given away. You know what I was thinking just before we went on uh, when I read about Tantor buying the rights. Mm-hmm. I think we should start a campaign writing nice letters to Tantor because they're 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 not guilty in any of this as far. No, as they're you know. not. And they're a wonderful company. I, they're a terrific company. Right. Just ask them if they would mind if uh, Broken Sea Audio can re-release these back on the internet, and tell, and we'll give them all kinds of praise, and we'll try to get them on Boing Boing and everything. You know, we'll just say. I think that'd a good be a company. great idea. Uh, now, I don't do think it. that uh, CPI is going to like that. I don't think CPI would encourage that, but um, it certainly. It, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that they would object just because it's not the same thing. Right. It's not the same thing. Even the the audio unabridged audiobook readings that they ha- that Broken Sea has done, not the audio dramas, but the unabridged readings, um, are not the same thing as a professional narrator sitting in a studio um, recording. You know, professional actor. It's not the same thing. It's not, and it's. And they can be as good, but it's a different market that you're reaching. Plus, it's not going to hurt their market. It can only no, hurt their market, no. in my opinion. I mean, you know, that's something you can be debated. But I, you know, I release public domain material through Wonder Audio. And I've looked, I've, I've done LibriVox. I mean, I've seen LibriVox titles of, like, Starborn is out. <coughs> right. And that did not affect my sales one bit. If anything, no. it probably helped it. Because people might listen to it. Uh, this is not quite what I was looking for. And right. they might buy my version. But if they didn't. 
they listen to it, great, you know. Or they uh, they like the LibriVox version, and they said, ah, that was awesome. I want to hear another version of the same thing. People want different things, and it doesn't, you know, the very fact that everyone's done a ver- different version of Dracula shows that there's a big demand for different versions, especially of, you know, really high-quality writing, which is what we've got here. Right. Another thing that I mentioned the last time I was on a two or three shows ago, you you had a question about Clark Ashton Smith, right? Uh, if it was in public domain or not, and I actually t- talked to a intellectual property lawyer today. And I'm talking about United States laws here. Mm-hmm. Um, if a if if a story appeared in a magazine, a periodical, in this time period that we're usually talking about, which is like from 1923 to 1963, or 1926, no, 1923 to 1963, mm-hmm. the term of copyright then was 28 years. And in that 28th year, the copyright holder could renew it. Some of them have expired. That's how come you see stories from the 40s, 50s, and 60s that are in public domain in the States here. Mm-hmm. Now, what I didn't, wasn't clear on, I knew a lot of... Uh, periodicals could renew their copyright and they did certain mags like astounding almost always did they were very and thrilling wonder stories and uh startling stories those were renewed where like magazines like galaxy and some of these uh some of most of the minor magazines never did because in 28 years everybody had lost interest in those mag or they had gone out of business and the rights had sort of well disappeared yeah so if the author didn't renew the copyright, I kind of thought, and the magazine did renew the copyright, I kind of thought that that would have been in public domain. And what I found out was it doesn't matter that if a magazine renewed the copyright, all that material in that magazine is copyright. So they're so renewing they're, the copyright for a particular issue, is that correct? Right, right. So they like the February 28th issue, or the February issue of... Uh, February 2000, no, I guess it was February 1958 issue of Galaxy were renewed. Everything in that particular issue is copyright of whoever owns the Galaxy. No, no, no. It doesn't mean, the copyrights could be orphaned. It doesn't, let's, let's use Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. Okay. Galaxy actually renewed theirs. If something appeared in the 1952 July issue or whatever, mm-hmm. if there was a story in there that the author didn't renew. Mm-hmm. Uh, fantasy and science fiction only bought the first printing rights. And so actually the works would, you'd have to contact the estate somehow of that author if the author was, you know, deceased as of now. Mm-hmm. And the rights to them. And if you can't contact them, you publish at your own peril, basically. You could probably publish it and. I have seen copyright pages and anthologies that said stuff like we've made every attempt to contact the copyright holder of this story and they can contact us, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Which means they did a reasonable search, but that doesn't mean they couldn't be sued. If- no. But I think the real story here is that no matter what you do, you can be sued. It's just whether you can win is the real, right. you know. Right, so if you don't have $10,000. Yeah, a good argument. and Back down, because what else yeah. can you do? And the worst thing that they can do after after you've been sued, the worst possible thing they can do is make you share the profits. Is that not correct? Um, 
I'm not going to, I'm not a lawyer kind of thing. So, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's things of dim- damages and stuff. Let's say you put out yeah. a really crappy version or something. <laughs> and harm the market and, and ruin their day. Yeah, I imagine yeah, so if they could, could if they could prove somehow that you've hurt their sales, then you could owe them even more, I guess. Right. That'd now, if be... it's some obs- obscure story from a 1950 science fiction magazine by some author that's not, you know, top drawer pulling, you know, I, I doubt you could get much more than just the percentage of a normal rate, you know, because they didn't. You know, there's no prop. There's no reason to hire a lawyer for three thousand dollars for a two hundred dollar no. claim. So. No, and the the um, I mean, I think the point is is if if you're trying to if you make a good effort and you try to work with the you know labyrinthine laws uh, to try and figure out who owns the copyright to something, and yet you still find the work is is um, orphaned or you can't tell who owns the rights if there are any rights um, the default position is to do nothing and just leave it and let it lie fallow and it'll stay that way until it becomes either clear or everyone forgets about it forever which seems to be the actual way most of this is happening most of this stuff just lies dead and you'll never see it again unless, you know, there's some way to de-orphan all those works. Exactly. So, it's it's really a sad story, I think. Yeah, it needs some uh, some resolutions. I, I don't I don't know what to suggest. You know. Take the copy fight. Boing boing, they have copy fight issues on theirs. That's that puts it out to the public, so they kind of learn about it. But yeah. you know, even though boing boing's popular, obviously not everybody reads boing boing. Well, for uh, I don't I don't know I don't know what I don't think uh, DMCA is on Obama's agenda. I don't think there's any new copyright legislation coming up. Uh, or if there's an appetite for it in the United States right now, but the fight is a fight for sane laws with regard to copyright and trademark um, is still happening in Canada and New Zealand. Um, things are not settled in either place yet. My position on Overdrive is it's a great idea um, that I can't get to work. Yeah, hold, hold on. We we need to, because I don't know. <laughs> what is Overdrive? What is okay, Overdrive? Well, Overdrive is a, um, I believe it's the parent company of uh, a um, service that is sold to libraries as a audiobook uh, download service. Okay. And the download service is available through your library where you... Um, go to your library's website. You sign in using your your patron uh, number on your card, mm-hmm. and then you have access to audiobooks to download um, to your OverDrive compatible audiobook player. Okay, I use uh, I use um, Net Library, which is, is that, OverDrive. That I is believe. OverDrive. Okay, so I'm familiar with how it works. 
Oh, Net library is, is different? It's separate. It's separate. It's a whole separate okay. thing. Oh, okay. But it works in a similar manner. All right. Okay. Um, I, I thought they were I thought they were the same company, but um, in any I case, had, sorry. One library service I was using actually had OverDrive and Net Library, so you could okay. check both catalogs. Um, one of the one of the issues that uh, I've been talking about uh, was that libraries are renting devices to play um, to play Net Library or I'm sorry OverDrive material. Um, so they, you go to the library and instead of getting an audiobook, um, you know, borrowing an audiobook, you rent a player and take it home and then download the the uh, audiobook of your choice, um, which goes onto the machine. And then after the uh, rent, uh, sorry, not rental date, the borrowing date, um, the files become unplayable after the borrowing date ends. So there's right. no late. That, there's that no late. How- that is how Net Library works exactly. Okay. Yep. Okay. Not, so even if it's I, not OverDrive, I'm just letting you know it's exactly the same. Okay. Okay. The one thing that's different, other libraries, I've, I I go to different libraries all the time, mm-hmm. and I've never seen any place that rented a listener, but it's your own right. MP3 player. So, but you said your library will loan you. MP3 player. I've heard of places loaning loaning um, the the players, but my big shock was that there was libraries renting uh, players, um, and they were talking about Zunes. Um, I'm not familiar with with um, all the players that can play these these compatible devices, but I do know that the one that is most commonly held, uh, more than seventy percent of the market, cannot play either Net Library or or uh, overdrive. I'm actually not 100 sure on that library. Okay, this is uh, yeah. What, my um, my local library um, just contacted me this week, and they said they've got a grant for some stuff, and they were thinking about buying a couple of players um, to for, check out. Yeah, for that exact purpose. But yeah, if they're, they're using that library, they can't use iPods because the yeah. iPods don't play net library files. Now this, okay. you know, you could blame the iPod, or you could blame the Oh, you know. Hang on a second. Overdrive, Sorry. on my library system, this might not be true of everybody's library system, is carrying MP3 audiobooks now. They started to, yeah. And they have like, a, there's exactly 136 titles right now that's MP3 format. Hmm. So you can download those. You, you, you do check off a little box for a user agreement saying you're not going to keep the files after they expire. Right. Which, of course, you know, I... Check my calendar every day and make sure I delete. <laughs> and the, the, you don't need to keep them if you can download them from the website again. Right? I know that is kind of silly. It's well, retarded. Uh, uh, yeah, it is. It's it's kind of like a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I'll do that. <laughs> but anyways, um, the WMA format is, you know, that's the DRM they use on the rest of the titles that aren't MP3. Right. And that's why they don't play on the iPod because it's a Windows format, but or a Microsoft format. And uh, if you get a converter, you can convert them. Sure. Which is what I used to do. But I I, I actually didn't buy an iPod uh, because of that because there's so many good titles. That's a library. Overdrive. Yeah. yeah. So I can just you know I can listen to everything. 
Basically. Well, I was seriously considering doing um, exactly that, you know, buying a second player um, when I got this new machine, my Vista machine. And um, I thought, well, I better check them out, make sure the sound quality is okay and everything. And uh, the first time I tried it, um, there were some technical problems with the website, so it didn't quite work. Second time I tried it, I downloaded no problem, got the player installed, and then it wouldn't play. Um, and I spent at least 45 minutes uh, trying to figure out why it wouldn't play. Um, turns out, well, the particular version of Windows Media Player did not play well with the particular version that they wanted it. You know, the, the format on the thing I had, just weren't, they weren't compatible. And I searched the internet trying to figure out all the different forms, but um, it's designed for Windows Media, doesn't play with the Windows Media Player. I've hmm. never had any problems. I've uh, I it's it's worked flawlessly for me, so I'm totally thrilled with it. And Jesse's had a opposite experience. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I I've heard lots of good stories, positive stories about it. It's just, um, and you know, it, it, Audible has had some issues um, with DRM, but generally, I find their plans are very. Um, very easy to access and it basically it works perfectly you just one click two click download and you're done and you've got an audiobook on your player yeah yeah i agree and the only we've talked about net library before um and the only problem that i've had with it is that it won't play on my ipod so um you know i either play it i can play it uh through you Windows sit in front of your computer oh yay yep, i can do that oh. or um figure out another way to get it on my player. Yeah. My problem with NetLibrary is they it's one single sound file. So if it's a 10-hour audiobook, it's a 10-hour file. And you got that in the middle of an MP3 that doesn't bookmark, and you're five hours into it, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's hard to get back into that five-hour mark, even if you write it down so you remember it. Right. Um, Overdrive, it's usually CD length, so it's like 70 minutes usually are the files broken down into so that works pretty well well in any case my my, um, my big problem here is I don't think libraries should be renting any equipment to its patrons um, for a couple of reasons one one is sort of a ideological reason that um, libraries are well public libraries are lending libraries and they do generate revenue from their patrons but it's usually through sales of, of uh, old books, or in late fees, which I'm very happy to contribute to. Um, and but, taxes. I, oh, well, clearly, taxes are the main mm-hmm. mainstay of mm-hmm. city taxes, etc., are the mainstay of, of a public library. Okay. But my big problem here is if we've got, if we've, we start mixing up a library's, um, you know, system, you've got rentals of some things, and, and, uh, and uh, borrowing of everything else, then you've got a two-tiered system, which is not good for a public library. Uh, public money going into, you know, subsidize a renting of something. It just sort of makes so, so makes it so a- much easier to to claim that you know public libraries are, should be gotten rid of because they're just doing business what business does. You know, so you're not against you're not against them having players. I think but it's a great against, idea. To have you're players. against the renting of the players. Absolutely. Okay. And 
for a couple of uh, reasons. Think- the first reason, as I said, and the second reason is because if you're renting a player, well, people could just buy a player and then rent a download from, from you know, or download an audiobook from Audible, which is much more likely just because when they buy an iPod, they're, they're getting something that is 70% uh, the standard as opposed to something that is less than 30% the standard of any other player. Or, you know, just invest, take that money that you're going to buy, you're going to buy some Audible compatible, I'm sorry, Overdrive or NetLibrary compatible players, um, like a Zune, I believe is available as for those systems you take that money and you spend it on mp3 cds from blackstone or from a couple of the other publishers do mp3 cds you take you take that mp3 cd home and rip it it'll play on any you don't even rip it just copy it over it'll play on any player in the in the marketplace zune or ipod anything just make it more compatible don't start falling into the trap of of, you know, getting six different systems. It's like the library, when the library started, they had beta and they had VHS. And that, so they'd end up having two copies of both. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. We sort of forget that, that the, I, I actually haven't seen any libraries going to Blu-ray and HD, and I'm really glad they didn't because the war wasn't over. It's over now, but... What is what? the uh, decision? Now, I haven't been paying attention. What Blu-ray. Is Blu-ray. Blu-ray. Okay. You can tell because HD DVDs are now one cent each or something. They're, they oh. have no value. Hmm. I didn't well, participate. The battle for, MP- <laughs> for the iPod format and, w- and Windows format isn't over. So No, it not, isn't. Should they not carry anything? No, they bring MP3 players. You know, MP3 because it can be can played played on either, right? Well, well, they're trying to do that, but what I think the problem is with the uh, like OverDrive and the publishers. The publishers probably were very didn't want to go without DRM, so they kind of had to put a DRM. And uh, I don't think iPod has a well, they they probably do have a DRM system, don't they? Audible does. Well, I know, but so did well. I mean, iPod is does too i mean they right yeah i'm confusing myself a little bit because of course the music was sold with drm on it was the big yeah. controversy for the longest time on now I, it's now it's available uh and drm free as well which I, I think is what this overdrive is showing that audiobooks are moving that way to drm free everything is moving that way except for where, where it's not and in those places the intransigence is um, is not generated by you know consumers. It's generated by corporations trying to position for uh, you know a, a monopolistic situation. Um, I think it was one of the. I was listening to the PC Gamer podcast the other day, and they were talking about why console games are more expensive than PC games. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, and their answer um, is that well. Basically, console games are more expensive because they can be. You've got a situation where the console is a giant DRM key. You know, your PlayStation 3 allows access to that disc. 
if you don't have the PlayStation 3, you can't access to that disc. And that, that, means, that means there's no possible competition, right? You can go and have your, your PlayStation 3 hacked, I guess, and that, that, that'll let you play it, anything you download or whatever. But if on a PC, it's, it, it can be cheaper because people are saying, you know, if the price point is too high, I'm just going to go download it. If the, I can't afford, you know, $75 for a game, I'll just go download it. And what the effect is, is um, people, people will uh, either not buy it on the, the console or rent it on the console. And in either case, their market has not increased. Right. Hey, I had a couple exceptions to some things you said about libraries renting, for one thing. Mm-hmm. Regional libraries around me that have in the past and some still do rent uh, uh, DVDs for a buck a day. What? Renting DVDs? <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, why, why would they do that? Maybe maybe if it's a really small town, you you don't have a a, uh, a DVD store. I don't know. They were cheaper than what, but now you know, DVD rental places have come down a lot. So I don't I don't really get. It. I found they've gone up here, but um, in either case, uh, you know, one of the big arguments we get up here all the time is that. Um, Government shouldn't be doing what business can do. So one of the big arguments against CBC is that CBC is um, in, in a business space. It's, it's selling products in a business space, um, especially television. They're competing with commercial channels by selling advertising. Um, CBC Radio is bulletproof now, basically basically bulletproof because it doesn't sell commercials. Um, if you have public libraries as uh, something that is funded by the public uh, through through a quasi, we would say, crown corporation, um, then it shouldn't be doing what the businesses are doing, if only to keep to keep the uh, keep it bulletproof from you know um, we got to make it more efficient we got to fire more people we got to do this to it we got to do that to it because if it starts operating within the business sphere it becomes subject to the business language and the business um, arguments you know we we shouldn't have uh, rental at a library because you're competing with the regular business that's down the street yeah, from it. What? But what if you're giving them away that's even hurting the, a business model even more at a video store? The, they've made that argument as well, but everyone seems to recognize that there is a public benefit to providing a, um, a, a revenue-neutral um, access to knowledge like a public library. The reason public libraries became popular is because education is actually good for the economy, and allowing people access to education on their own uh, to supplement, you know, what, no, no matter what your standard of living is. I don't know, maybe really, really rich people go to the library every day too, but I do know that a lot of people who can't afford, um, you know, buying every book in their, for their private library go to the library. 
when you're a kid, where do you hang out? At the library. Why? Because you don't have an income. Well, what's, what's fascinating now, libraries have almost become uh, internet terminals. You know what I mean? In a way, I, yeah. Whenever I go Absolutely. into a library, it seems like 75% of the people are in front of internet access because they don't Absolutely. have Absolutely. Yeah, they don't have their own, or they don't have their own Wi-Fi. So they bring in their laptop and they do their business and then they leave. Um, in any case, it's, it's providing sort of a, 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 a floor at which no one can fall below. And if you start making that floor have several you know, steps with rentals, it's a different story than charging even exorbitant late fees. Oh, the other issue I was going to bring up was you were talking about compatibility, compatibility and how good Audible is. But Audible doesn't play on a lot of just standard MP3 players. It's got to be a play for sure. Which Absolutely. There's not a whole lot of makers, so there's, there's a big drawback there, I think. Well, I'm, I think, I think you, if you go by the number of manufacturers out there, you're absolutely right. But um, Audible, I'm sorry, iPods are the primary device on the market um, in the sense that it has a more than 70% market share. Most people have iPods. If they have an, if they have an MP3 player, most of them have an iPod. Then in that bottom 30% or the top 30%, there's you know 60 different companies working in. Four or five of them are, are dominating. Sony and uh, Rio and a couple other ones are dominating that other chunk. But, That's true. And I just, I just uh, read Audible has the Philips, the manufacturer Philips is becoming play for sure. I'm not sure if the... the the models are out yet, but they're going to be Audible compatible too. I think isn't uh, Play for Sure Windows? Yeah, it's actually Windows. I'm I'm kind of confusing the two. I think, uh, yeah. but I think if it's Play for Sure, it will handle the Audible format. If I'm not yeah. mistaken. So there's a lot of there's a lot of players outside of iPods that do play Audible. Players. I agree. I don't, don't want to confuse people to think you got to have an iPod if you're going to listen to Audible. No, I mean, when they started the company, they had their own brand. What was it? Otis, I think. Yeah, Yeah, it was an Otis. I had one of those. <laughs> an Audible Otis. That's before, uh, it might have even been before iPods existed. I think um, it was. 2000. Mm-hmm. Audible's been around for almost 10 years. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.